This is UCL Future Cities, the podcast series that brings together some of the people exploring and shaping what our cities could be like in the future. I'm Christoph Lindner, Dean of the Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment here at UCL. And in this first series, we've been looking at the future of London, where I'm speaking to you from at UCL's main campus here in the heart of Bloomsbury in central London. This is episode six and our finale in the series. And it's our first live event this year. So that's really exciting. And it's being streamed to our online audiences. And we are thrilled to also have a live audience in the room with us today here at the Bloomsbury Theatre Studio. So everyone watching live will have the chance to ask questions. The event is a discussion about the proposed Camden High Line in London. We will be asking how the High Line effect might shape the future of Camden and whether tourism, gentrification and investment can or will benefit the local community. We have two fantastic guests with us today. Um, one of our guests is able to join us in the studio and our other guests is joining us uh, remotely online. It was initially the plan that she would be here with us in the studio. But as we know, in the age of pandemic planning, um, plans have to change and adapt and uh, we're just rolling with it. So I'm joined by Simon Pitkeefley, who is the CEO of the Business Improvement Districts, Camden Town Unlimited and Euston Town, and also the CEO of Camden Collective and, very importantly for us, the Camden Highline. He is also the co-chair of the Cross River Partnership and chair of Camden Giving. And Simon has been leading the Camden Highline project since its inception in 2017. So great to have you with us, Simon. And then we're joined remotely by Jody Eastwood and uh, really excited, Jody, that you could uh, uh, make it. She is the CEO of London's Knowledge Quarter, which is a consortium of knowledge creators, all within a one mile radius of King's Cross. And the aim of the Knowledge Quarter is to encourage all kinds of knowledge seekers to make the most of the partners combined resources. So to break down barriers and stimulate dialogue, to create new friendships, new connections, and new knowledge, through a sense of shared purpose and possibility. And here at UCL, we are located within and contribute to the Knowledge Quarter. So I'll turn things over to our speakers and I'd like to invite them to tell us just a little bit more about their background and also their involvement in the, the Camden Highline project. And I think we'll begin with you, Simon. Um, could you tell us what is the Camden Highline and what is your role in the project? Gladly, thank you, Christoph. Thanks very much for having me. So, um, yeah, I run the, the Camden Highline project. I'm its proposer, um, and uh, I'm responsible for making sure it happens and raising the money. Um, I think, for those who don't know, the Camden Highline is going to be an amazing park in the sky that will run from Camden Town to the back of King's Cross. It's about 1.2 kilometres long. It's going to have four entrance points, although the design team are now trying to squeeze in a fifth. Don't they always design creep? Um, 
uh, they don't have to pay for it, that's why. Um, but uh, the, the, the fundamentals of it are much like New York or Paris. And let's not forget that the Provenant Planté was there first. The French got there first, a bit like America. Um, and uh, it's also going to be next to a live train line. So it's up on the viaduct and there's going to be trains going past you. And I always like to say there's something really, when you do get up there, it's quite difficult to go up there at the moment because of the live trains. There's really something quite magical about having trains trundle past you, both passenger trains and freight trains. And I think that's what's going to make it particularly um, stand out as a sort of Highline raised park uh, initiative. Um, that's probably enough for now, bit of scene setting. Is that okay, Christophe? Yeah, that and sounds we'll great. And, I, and I'm really glad that you already referenced the Promenade Planté in Paris which um, was uh, a disused rail viaduct that was turned yeah. into a linear park back in the early 90s, mm. I believe. And yeah. that's really an, an interesting and important reference point for this whole phenomenon of, of, uh, of elevated parks. Um, and, uh, but also fascinating to hear that a key difference of the Camden High Line is that there will be a live railway. So trains will be going past you. And that is completely different to Paris where it is a disused railway line with no trains going by, and the same in New York, disused rail line with no trains going by. So that's yeah. something we have to come back to. What will that be like being up there with trains hurtling past? Um, but Jody, let's uh, invite you in, and uh, we'd love just to hear a little bit more about your work, about the Knowledge Quarter, and how that connects to the Camden High Line. So the, the Knowledge Quarter, um, as Christoph pointed out, is uh, a geographical area, um, a loose one mile radius uh, from Kings Cross Station and is considered one of the world's largest innovation districts. Within the KQ, you can find knowledge resources ranging from you know, the world's earliest books at the British Museum to the latest fashion and creative designs and, and cutting edge uh, medical research. <clears throat> so, Befitting to the work that we do and the way that we operate, the KQ kind of came around from a conversation between neighbours and the heads of uh, the British Library, the Crick and uh, Central St Martins uh, University Arts London began to talk what it meant to have one of the world's largest libraries next to Europe's largest medical research institute and one of the world's most renowned art and design schools. Three incredibly different organisations, but at heart of everything they do is the creation and sharing of knowledge. And the more that they looked at the, the, the King's Cross Bloomsbury area, the more they began to understand that neighbours weren't talking to neighbours and opportunities for collaboration and innovation and friendship were being lost. So the partnership brought um, what currently sits as around 100 organisations together to really begin to consider what makes place place and how people within that place can begin to work with each other in a much more strategic and effective way. Um, it's worth mentioning that the origin of the knowledge culture is very unlike um, most innovation districts. So most innovation districts are, are built by governments, landowners and developers to drive inward investment. But, you know, the, where you're sitting at the moment, um, that Bloomsbury has been the intellectual heart of London for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so for us, it was about bringing people together, um, considering those that had been there before um, some of the larger developments in the King's Cross area and how we engage with both businesses, but also the communities that have circulated or populated desirable land redevelopment. 
so you know we're, we're collectively responsible to ensure that um, our innovation district not only responds to the needs of the business community but also connects deeply with its citizens building spaces and housing businesses that offer community benefits whether that be green space or employment and education opportunities and, and this is where the high line is so important for us. Uh, you have this, this, this new and, 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 uh, and innovative and bustling part of the city, uh, but sometimes the connections aren't there. People find it difficult to move around these spaces. So beginning to develop a, a walk, a park in the sky, a, a, a new piece of um, regeneration, urban development that can begin to connect these these innovative places is really, really important to us. And we hope that it will go somewhat towards kind of consolidating what we would see as a spatial strategy for the Knowledge Quarter area. You've already touched on one of the first things I wanted to ask you and Simon, which is the question, um, why would a park like the Camden Highline be good for London? Why do we even need it? And you, um, Jody, have referenced the importance of kind of consolidating community relations and neighborliness and thinking about what positive things make a place into a place. And it sounds like the Camden Highline could contribute to those things. But more broadly, uh, you know, London is often considered quite a green city. We had recently, the, the, I, I think it's fair to call it this now, the debacle of the Garden Bridge, that very expensive non-bridge, non-park that never, never got built over the Thames. Um, and so I think we could ask the question, do we need a, a park in the sky. What do you think, Simon? I think, um, well, hey, I, I love to be able to say that we could build the Camden High Line for less than they spent not building the Garden Bridge. It's one <laughs> of my favorite little quotes. Um, so I think, you know, we, you could argue the merits of the Garden Bridge, and I don't think they were all bad, actually, I have to say. But um, one of the key things I think we've already realized with the Camden High Line is that because of its proximity to the four housing estates in Camden, Mm -hmm. and the lack of green in and around those areas. The mayor of London's aspiration that everyone should be within 400 metres of green space, 10,000 people qualify for that the minute you open the highlight, just because of the lack of, the green, lack of green space around there, but also because of the density of those housing estates. If you go to 500 metres, it's 20,000 people, which is something like 8% of Camden's population. So you know, just on those metrics alone, it's kind of worth doing. Yeah. I think it's also... Um, there's something really interesting happening to London as a whole, which is perhaps more about its, the economic positioning. But if you look at a visitor economy map of London circa 1980, there was a sort of Camden Town bit popping out the top. Um, you then got the sort of South Bank coming in more into the central visitor economy area when we opened the Jubilee Line and Waterloo International. King's Cross has just pulled a chunk out of the top of that kind of area. Euston's going to do the same, obviously, with HS2. But the High Line kind of pulls that all together. You, you join up Camden Town and King's Cross in a way that when you start to think about London as an economic area, central London, actually it changes quite a lot and the High Line becomes quite an important boundary there. So I like this idea of the High Line as a kind of link between different neighborhoods yeah. in and around Camden. And it makes me wonder about the name. So in New York, it's called the New York High Line, yeah. not the Manhattan High yeah, Line yeah, yeah. or the West Side High Line. Yeah. Um, is there any history or politics to why it's the Camden High Line and not the London High Line? I think, can... I think there's an element of Camden has a very strong international brand and it's a, of, its own, of its own. Mm -hmm. People kind of know Camden in a sense. And I think it is a very sort of Camden-centric kind of thing. 
you know, we've always, I mean, we run the business improvement district for Camden Town. Mm -hmm. And so it's always very much grown out of that. Um, but I don't think the name has to be set in stone. I mean, it's been a useful working title because Camden and Highline kind of, you get it, it explains it very well and easily. Lots of people know about New York. We make it as one word, they have it as two words, but you know. So I think it's been useful. I, I, I'm not completely wedded to it. As I often say uh, to the community groups that we speak to, and I've spoken to loads and loads of them, um, you know, one day we might have to call this the Smirnoff Highline um, in order to be able to attract the commercial sponsorship to build it, which doesn't always go down well. You <laughs> I was know. just about but, to say. <laughs> you know, um, there's lots of variations on that. Uh, the brand Camden is quite important actually, quite useful. Okay. Um, and so I'm also wondering then, um, the particular moment that we're in, why, why now as we work through a pandemic and hopefully find a way out of that pandemic, why would a space like an elevated park on adjacent to a live railway, uh, why is that something that, that, that we need? And I'm, I'm wondering, from the point of view, uh, Jody, from the kind of knowledge quarter point of view, a community relations point of view, um, do you see an increased urgency now for a project like the Camden Highline? Yes, I, I mean, you know, we, we always talk of the knowledge quarter in, in the sense of an embarrassment of riches um, and the density that it serves. I mean, you know, Kings Cross, Camden, um, the Knowledge Quarter area is probably one of the most overdeveloped places in, in London, if not in, in Europe. Um, what we see is a lack of uh, space um, for commercial developments. And obviously, as the Knowledge Quarter, we want to support the right types of businesses moving into the area that offer um that offer added value into the knowledge economy through life sciences ai machine learning and all of that that wonderful stuff but what that means is that you you lose or you local authorities begin to kind of reclaim that that green space which is absolutely vitally important to make any kind of part of any city work effectively so yeah, within um, New York, within Paris, uh, probably a, a huge amount more space available in, in which to be able to deliver these types of projects. But in London, in the knowledge quarter, there isn't. So to be able to take something that is disused, um, that has that level of connectivity between parts of the area, is vitally connected into the local community, but also the business community as well, and then present it as a great place for people to socialise, for people people to be in for being for people to populate is um is really really important particularly with the hs2 development um taking away some of the green space that we see in and around the area at the moment so then let's talk a little bit about the imagined experience of the highline so we've touched on some of its values why it makes sense in in the location but also in this moment um, but we also know that there are going to be these trains hurtling by. Is that going to be loud and scary? Is that going to be relaxing? How, how Simon, do you imagine an everyday stroll along the Camden High Line unfolding? Well, it's, it's very interesting you say that um, in terms of the trains going past and it being noisy. It's surprisingly not noisy at all. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really quite serene place to be. The trains are speed limited. Sorry, I'm looking up because we've got a video of, the, of it going along and you might see a train go past at some point. But um, it's a surprisingly serene place to be and the trains don't, are speed limited uh, because it's, it's on a viaduct. Mm. So they're not hurtling past you at all. Okay. They make quite kind of um, clunky, cute train noises, I think. Um, and I, for, for me, as I, I was like to say, because I've been up there, 
um, if it is a restricted area, you can't go without a lot of network rail support. Um, you're seeing trains sort of just doing their thing when they're not at platforms mm -hmm. is quite unusual. I expect trains to be the size they are when I get on them, but of course they've got wheels and bits underneath. And um, so it's quite a surreal experience in that way. Um, and particularly those freight trains that just seem to go on and on and on and on. Um, it's really quite nice. So I'm hoping that we're going to be able to find a way of separating the two where you can still see and hear and feel the trains mm -hmm. as they go past you. Like I say, it's not like an intercity train. Um, it's much cuter than that. In terms of the sort of experience that you're going to be able to meander uh, through a relatively quick direct route between Camden Town and King's Cross through what we hope will be amazing greenery, some stimulating environments. There's going to be some sort of event type spaces. Um, we want it to be amazing. We want it to stay amazing. We want it to kind of be a little experience in its own right, but also to be very practical. Yeah. Because I think, you know, on Jody's point, we, we, we do, I, people like me run business improvement districts. We spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about town centres. Um, it's our day job. Um, and I think it's quite interesting, as, by the way, that, that business improvement districts don't use themselves to do more things like generate high lines or our other project Camden Collective, because I think it's such a great model. You know, all your staff are already paid for. You've got the infrastructure. And I think that's been quite an interesting feature of how We've got the High Line as far as we have, as quick as we have. Um, but I, I think the way in which town centres link to each other, if you think of Camden Town, Kings Cross and Euston, they don't really interact with each other very much at all. And they don't really think that much about the communities around them. I know we all like to think we do, but in reality, do we, you know? So I think things that kind of bring those chunky economic areas together link them together but also make them relevant to the people around them and of course post-pandemic 15-minute city all of that stuff suddenly it becomes a lot more interesting than it was before and it was pretty interesting before the pandemic. James Corner and Field Operations who are going to design the Camden High Line and very famously are also um, behind the design for the New York High Line yeah. and for me it raises a question um, uh, why use the same designers for this park, um, given that it further um, references or ties this project back to New York. So I'm just wondering whether there's discussion or tension within the, the, the broader project around the degree to which you're comfortable being, being similar or, or, or referencing the New York High Line and the degree to which you want to be different and separate from it. Uh, yeah, James hates the fact that we call it the High Line, by the way. He loved to call it something different because he's very conscious of that connection. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, I mean, just for, for background, we ran a, a, an international design competition. We had 75 entries and they all put together teams of people. It's not just James and Field Operations who are doing, doing this. Uh, in fact, one of the entries included the musician Brian Eno and they didn't get shortlisted. I'm still upset about that. I think that we really should have had Brian Eno, whatever team he was in. Uh, but, you know, that was a, a very eminent team of judges looked at all the entries and they, which I wasn't involved in, they, they chose uh, James and his team because of the team, really. It wasn't that much to do with New York. Um, it was to do with people like Pierre Oldoff, um, people like uh, VPPR, who are a local mm -hmm. architecture practice based in Kentish Town. It's a really cute, interesting team they've put together. And I think that's that was the winning combination, actually. It wasn't just the ideas and the approach. It doesn't hurt that James has done it before, um, but uh, we certainly didn't think that we'd end up where we did. It was very much a kind of open design competition. 
Okay, good to hear. And New York is on my mind because now that it's been a, yeah, now that it's been um, a while, you know, a decade or so since the New York Highline has been open, we've seen its effects on the surrounding neighborhood. It's matured as a park. It's worked through some of its teething issues. Um, and I think we've also learned a bit from New York. And I'm wondering, is there anything you've observed in the New York version of the elevated park that you want to avoid in the Camden version? Uh, I've had several meetings with the, the, the originators of, of the New York Highline. And um, I've asked them the obvious question, what would you do now knowing what you know if you were us? And um, they all said two things. They said, one, get the landowners to contribute because they're the biggest beneficiaries and they contributed the least. Uh, and the second is build the community in from the start. Let, it, let, it, let them be part of the evolution of this thing as it happens. And that's been something that we've really tried hard from the beginning. We've, you know, we've had 1,500 people go on walks. We've got 300 friends in the High Line. We've had 1,000 donations already. You know, it's a, it's, we've really spent a lot of shoe leather trying to kind of help people understand that. And indeed, one of James Corner's team is specifically involved in that engagement with those housing estates that perhaps are less interested in things like the High Line. They haven't been to New York. They don't necessarily get that. And it's a bit too far away. They have more immediate concerns. Um, I, I mean, far away in time. Um, so I think we've, we've, we've really picked that up with gusto from uh, what they told us. But I also think it will naturally be different because of the train, because of where it is. Um, I think Camden Town and Kings Cross are their own identities and I suspect they'll infect the High Line from each end in different ways. And I think that'll be really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, how it pans out, we don't know, but it's, got, it's, it's fascinating to watch how it's evolving already. So you mentioned housing around the Camden High Line, and I think this is an important, but also sensitive topic. And if I look back to the New York High Line, one of the, the effects of creating that park was to unleash waves of rapid, uh, intense gentrification on the west side of Manhattan and to cause uh, uh, real estate values to just skyrocket and some even argue that the New York High Line killed off the art scene in Chelsea and other parts of, of, of Manhattan because of the gentrification effects. And so Jody, I'm thinking from a knowledge quarter point of view, um, what worries do you have around the potential of the Camden High Line to unleash similarly kind of uncontrolled uh, gentrification? I mean, I think we can appreciate that central London is already um, an incredibly expensive place to live, uh, regardless of whether it's in Camden or not. Um, I think that what Simon says is very appropriate. You know, Camden is a very, very different place to, to uh, New York and therefore will respond to this in different ways. I think one of, one of my worries has always been um, how to ensure that the communities are built into the conversation around the High Line from the beginning, which has been done. Um, the gentrification or regeneration, however you want to kind of uh, talk about it, is evident within King's Cross already, um, quite significantly. And I think that the, the words that I would use and the words that I would take through into the continued development of the High Line is 
is it for us? You know, what we hear from our local communities is this is not for us. We do not belong on this development. Um, the shops that have been uh, commissioned to be here are not affordable. This isn't for us. So in order for it to be successful, it needs to be uh, for the community and for everybody. I think my only other one concern, and this is probably something that I would challenge um, Network Rail and Simon and the uh, and the bid team to, to consider is the length of lease on this, you know, I, I would like to see a much longer lease available to to uh, Camden Highline than is that is currently available and I think that that would make the long term investment, considering that with the Houston development you're looking at, you know, 40 plus years worth of development, I think that it would be good to see an equal if not increased lease for the for the High Line itself as well. To be honest, if we had started on that foot, we'd never have got anywhere with Network Rail. You know, they, it's all about, we've always talked about temporary. We use our other project, Camden Collective, which is all about meanwhile space, as an example of us using other people's assets well, um, and, 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 you know, not embarrassing the owners and so on. And we've had to do quite a, an important piece of work in helping Network Rail work with us, who actually have been really, really good far better than people expect Network Rail to be about these sorts of projects. They've actually been great. Um, so, so, you know, some things are, the Eiffel Tower is temporary. You know, I think thing, these things, you, you work with a grain of where you're going and hope that they kind of last longer. And the other thing, just back to the point about gentrification, which is different about the Camden High Line, is that it, these four industri uh, housing estates that it goes through are owned by the local authority. So yes, you're going to get land value increases at at the Argent Estate, at Tile Yard, at Camden Market, and to lots of um, homeowners in, in around Kentish Town. But actually the majority of the space is cutting right through Camden-owned housing estates. Now Camden may get an increase in its balance sheet value as a result of that, but it can't do much with it as a local authority. So you've got that inbuilt kind of downward pressure, which sometimes I regret because it'd be nice to try and, um, you know, uh, find ways of, of, of utilizing that to raise the finance. Um, so, so again, I think, it, we're very mindful of that effect. And I think as to Jody's point, there's a limit to what you can do about progress, um, which isn't quite what Jody said, but I'm sort of paraphrasing. Um, but I also think that because of that connection to the, the ownership of, uh, uh, by the local authority, by the public sector, I think it is quite different. The other interesting thing that we didn't think about at all when we first started it is that when you're at King's Cross, mm -hmm. that bit on York Way, you're going to be a 10 minute walk from the Camden Road Overground Station. Now, at the moment, if you're down there, you don't think the Overground's anywhere near you. Those sorts of things, I think, really help make it practically practical and useful to people who live very nearby so that it's not just, oh, a kind of nice park, much as it might be, and it will be free. And of course, that's, you know, cost, what it costs to build has got no reflection of how much it's going to cost to be out there because it won't cost you anything. But if it's practical and it's useful for your everyday, it connects you, I think, much more to it than something that's just a place to visit because it's nice. Yeah, I would like to touch on uh, the extent or the ways in which the park will be a public space. And again, with New York as a reference point, one of the criticisms directed at the New York park is, yes, technically it's public, but the public funding of that park has come at the cost of supporting other parks in other parts of the city that have been kind of neglected and underfunded and under-resourced for a long time. So it's activated a kind of parks inequity dynamic within New York City. 
But maybe uh, also importantly that the New York High Line, yes, it's a public park, but it's not a very free space. You have tightly controlled access. You can only you know, walk in certain ways. You can't play sports. You can't do messy things. You can only purchase stuff from approved vendors in approved places. Um, and, and, you, and you do have that critique that the, the, the park is almost like a curated landscape museum experience slash a backyard for billionaires kind of critique. Now, that is one extreme, and it's hard to imagine the Camden High Line being quite at that extreme, but it does raise the question of in what ways will the experience of the park feel free, open, public? Hmm. Slugger? Go for it, Simon. Um, yeah, you won't be in Camden Town, have you? Um, I don't think it's going to be like that, really. Uh, it, it turns, I think that a lot of the grittiness uh, of Camden Town will, as I say, infect the High Line. Um, I think there's also the difference in the, to your first point, the difference in the model of public park funding in this country compared to New York is, I think, important here. So we're not taking resource away from the parks team at Camden Council to uh, build or run the park. That's the whole point is it's, it's a, a self-contained entity. So whether um, either the council run parks or the royal parks, you know, uh, uh, deteriorate or, or improve, is got won't ha won't be connected to to whether the High Line does well because we're raising money in our own way uh, 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 that's different to their funding streams. But I think back to my earlier point in terms of whether it will become a billionaire's playing ground, the places it connects to aren't so much that, but also because of the practical connections. Um, you know, it, it is a it will be a much better way of getting between Camden Town and Kings Cross than any existing route. You know, even the canal is a very narrow, b dominated by cyclists, and c not very direct. Um, so I think you know again that the practicality of it matters quite a lot. I think when you compare it to New York. Yeah, I appreciate that, and how the local specificities, yeah, and histories and cultures and and the, the urban geography yeah. of uh, of Camden um, will will make things different. Um, and I'd love then to turn to one of our Zoom questions because it continues to push us down this line of thinking. Um, and we have uh, one, of our, one of our audience members on, online asking us about uh, whether this elevated park might create shadowed, dull, dingy spaces below it. So in other words, what's going to happen underneath the park? And I'm sure that you've thought of that, but I'm also wondering, um, Jody, from a knowledge quarter kind of you know, business development point of view, does space under the park represent something of an opportunity? You know, the, this, this is not being built from scratch. So these places and spaces already exist. Um, obviously it, it represents an opportunity and any available space within the knowledge quarter area that isn't occupied provides an opportunity. We have, uh, companies from across the UK, across Europe, and across the world that are looking to position themselves in in the uh, in the innovation district that is the knowledge culture in Kings Cross. But I think that you know, sort of going back to the community benefits and thinking about you know the work that perhaps has not been done so well in Brixton with the Brixton Arches. Um, how could these spaces be used in a in a meanwhile capacity, which Simon has a lot of expertise on, um, to continue the economic um, investment growth for those people in the local community. Jody's, Jody's put it very well really I mean the, because we're not building anything new the space below it is already there and a lot of it is quite dull what we'll be doing is putting feet into it 
and to actually bring them to life in a way that they currently aren't. You know, those people that go around on the walks under the High Line now are spending a lot of time in quite dull, disused spaces. I think we're going to bring quite a lot of light and vibrancy to them. We have lots and lots of questions coming in online, so I want to begin to pick up some of those. Um, connecting back to the question about the ways in which the park will be public and accessible, we've got a very practical question here asking whether there will be elevators or stairs or something, some kind of vertical transportation to yeah. ensure accessibility. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we wouldn't get planning permission from CAM then if it weren't fully accessible. Yeah, absolutely right. That's built in from the start. Yeah. Um, and another design-related question um, is, is asking uh, whether the Camden High Line will, like the New York High Line, have different kinds of spaces to kind of linger and lounge, like overlooks, seating areas. You know, what, what kind of variety do you anticipate across the, the linear park? I think the way the design's going at the moment is quite interesting. They're sort of seeing it as four sections, each of which having its own character. So there'll be a kind of wild area, there will be the overlooks that you talk about. I think we're also quite interested in, from a ground level perspective, trying to find as many ways as possible for the High Line to kind of overflow. So at least it's sort of present in your line of sight, even though it's quite a long way up, it's present in your line of sight. So yeah, I think it's, there's gonna be different experiences as you go along it. Okay, and another question, this one I'll um, direct to Jody in the first instance but it's about Camden's brand image. So we have um, an audience member wondering or, or saying that uh, Camden's brand image is one of creativity and quirks and is wondering whether that will be reflected in the High Line's design and functionality. And Camden's a wonderful borough. It's always been considered a borough of, uh, I, I think the local authorities say, re rebellious spirits. And, and I think that that sums sums Camden up very well. It's also an incredibly large borough, and I, I think that maybe don't appreciate just quite how big it is. Um, for me, it's, it's about being innovative and taking risks, and I think that that's where the High Line provides that really interesting point of exploration into what it means to create space and what it means to create space within an already very populated area and I think that that Simon mentioned about um, the, the Regent's Canal as a connecting um, walk through through the knowledge quarter through Camden but if you look at how popular that's become and how congested that that's become then it shows that there's an evident need for an alternative so I think that you know how it's delivered will be reflected in the spirit that Camden has if it's innovative if it's risk-taking if it goes sort of above and beyond just what a walk in the sky would look like and and does those things that Simon was talking about sort of you know coming over the edges and feeding into the public realm and environment around it then it then it will fit very beautifully into the spirit of the area. For people who don't know the area if you say you work at Camden Council they think you've got an office on Camden Lock and that bit of Camden High Street is very much what people think of as the whole borough. As Jodie said, it's a much bigger, more complex uh, place than just that. But I think one of the things that we've always recognized is that as land values increase in an area like Camden Town in particular, you do lose, you know, when I was a young man, you came to Camden and you set up a business because it was cheap and everyone else around was doing the same thing. It was fun, you know. And we are losing some of that as land values increase and that's happening in cities across the world and, and particularly in London. Camden Collective gives away free space to young creative startups. 
So people who wouldn't necessarily find themselves in a WeWork, but have got a great business idea, don't necessarily have the networks, will give them free space in order that they can have an opportunity mm -hmm. to start their own venture and hopefully see Camden Town as a place to do that, even though they couldn't initially afford it to be there. So I think, I, I hope that that sort of um, uh, infection, you know, between the different things that we do through the business improvement districts will also help keep that spirit of Camden alive. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like um, thinking about the needs of the community, the interests of the community is something that you, you've put very front and center. And Jody, it sounds like from your point of view, from a knowledge quarter perspective, um, that's also going to be a huge part of what will make the Camden Highline successful. Okay. Uh, and Jody, do you have any thoughts on the mutability of the Camden skyline, the cityscape? I mean, how, if you could imagine the, the area around the Camden Highline 20, 50 years from now, what, what, what might be an ideal version of that for you? Would it look exactly the same? Would it be lined by massive skyscrapers with helicopter pads, something in between? What's, what, what could the future look like for you? And I think that we already have to recognise that as it stands at the moment, the King's Cross area is one of the most desirable places to set up a business to, to um, house a very large organisation such as Google, who are building their um, headquarters in King's Cross at the moment. Um, you know, th this this is not this is not new for us. This this has been um, a, a problem, a challenge, an issue for us for a number of years now. That space is just not available, and it's it's really about curating the right space. And I, I don't know if you know, but there's a um, a, a policy. I'm not going to get into local authority planning policies at the moment because you know that's not on theme. But there is a policy that Camden use called for their site allocation plan, which um, asks that new developers look at very closely at what they're going to build and who it's going to be for. So it's about curating the right organisations. It's about ensuring that, uh, and I don't want to sort of start saying names, but rather than a, a, a big kind of faceless corporate bank moves in and takes a big skyscraper with a helicopter on top, what you get is you get a company or a business that's much more civically minded that wants to uh, contribute to the local economy, that believes in inclusive procurement, that believes in uh, giving itself targets to employ from the local communities as well. And if those two things go hand in hand, then that offers up a really interesting opportunity for the community, um, for London uh, and for the UK as well. It's all about interesting investment opportunities and how you benefit from those on a wider scale possible. Okay, so a very different line of questioning to follow on from that. There's a whole arc of questions on the chat that are related to biodiversity and the environment. And if we go back to the initial um, um, points that we were discussing about bringing a green space into Camden. So obviously there's benefit for residents, there's benefit for quality of life, health, well-being, but what, how much of an impact will a park like the Highline actually have on the bio, biodiversity of the area? Is it big enough to even have an impact? There are areas of the Highline at the moment where if you were, you know, wildlife living in the area, you'd find it quite difficult to cross, if you can imagine that mm -hmm. there. And in a sense, but there's also areas that are so dense because they're just grown wild because no one's been up there that, that you, you couldn't access them. And I'm hoping that what we're going to be able to do is sort of spread that out more evenly so that it becomes a, a useful thoroughfare for all kinds of uh, biodiversity. 
Um, but I think that it, it's part of the kind of post-pandemic world that we're starting to think a lot more seriously about now than we did 18 months ago. Um, I think there's enough space up there because it gets to about 20 meters deep, deep around Camden Road overground. So there's, a, there's space enough to do a lot, but it is also in places just a very narrow strip of parkland. I, I hope that what we do is build all those thoughts in from the beginning and, uh, and let it flourish in a way that will make it useful across all this, uh, across that, for, for the whole biodiversity agenda. Yeah, and on mentioning biodiversity, uh, I think it, it brings up what I would, I guess, call the politics of planting. <laughs> so um, there's been a lot of debate about what was planted in New York, yeah. uh, how it was planted, who planted it. Yeah. Um, and we have some questions on the chat, uh, just interested in what the approach to planting will be at the High Line and uh, the extent to which it will look for native British uh, plantings or take a different approach. Have you heard anything about that at this point? Um, we are very mindful of it, but I am absolutely not a planting expert. And I know this mm -hmm. is quite a thorny minefield. I liken it to the sort of cycle debate. You know, you kind of want to approach it with caution because there's lots of people who feel very strongly about, about it from uh, one side or the other. But I th we've, we've felt and have been encouraged by Camden, but also by the design team, that something that is sustainable in its own right, that's not gonna require big kind of irrigation systems mm -hmm. to maintain it, that is local. Uh, and because we do have to think about this temporary thing that you know, can exist in, within itself, um, is, is gonna be really important to that. But, and I think Pierre Eldorf is gonna be quite an important part of that discussion really. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you brought up cycling. And there yeah. is a question <laughs> wanting to know, will there be cycling on the High Line? Oh, my God, what have I let around? Uh, okay, I mean, if the, trained, the, reason, the, the, the reason it's controversial is, is not because I have a view either way about uh, cyclists, really. But in all these kind of little conversations in the backs of pubs with sort of local community groups, there is, or it, when you take people on walks, there's always someone that says, can I take my bike up there? And 15 people turn to them and go, no! <laughs> and it's because local people feel that the canal has been ruined for them by the cyclists. Mm. And they really have this strong sense that they quite like. Now, of course, the cycling lobby will say we should be able to go anywhere we like. And of course, we're not going to have police up there. There's no one's going to kind of, you know, if you take your bike up there, um, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the worst could happen is, but no one's going to kick you off the island. Um, but I do think it, it because, A, because there's, there are some very narrow sections, so you couldn't have segregated cycling anyway. B, it's quite a long way to lug a bike up. It's quite, it's not a, it's not that close to the ground. Um, and to go 1.2 kilometers in a straight line, once you, you know, and it probably in bits of it won't be a sort of straight line park either. So I think cyclists will be deterred rather than banned. Um, and of course, Camden is doing a lot of work on improving cycle infrastructure on the ground, the ground level anyway. So um, yeah. Yeah, and Jody, um, the question of biodiversity and the greening of Camden, um, the High Line represents an intervention, a contribution to that larger effort. I know that um, right here at UCL, we have a whole active conversation going on um, about the possibility, which personally I'm very supportive of, of rewilding Bloomsbury. Um, do you have any thoughts? If, if, if you could um, start to, to grow and open up new spaces for, for parks and 
and rewilding and greening and restoring of habitats and, and increasing biodiversity, where, where could they go in the borough? Do you have any thoughts on that? That's a, that's a great question. I think, I think that um, more importantly than biodiversity, it's the diversity of use. And I think that that's really important to, to acknowledge and understand that communities that have been living in Camden have seen a decline in usable space. So, you know, we, we can look at some of the new developments and the planting is beautiful and it's all very exotic, but actually what people want is a lot of grass that they can sit on and run around on and have children, um, you know, be, be in the middle of nature. And I think that that's, that's what we need to see more of. And I do, I do, I do get concerned because we see a lot of, um, potential ideas for development that you know have roof gardens and you know that's that's all fair and well for biodiversity but then it becomes exclusive and local people can't access it and you know what what you're doing is you're dividing the equality of who has access to 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 space and who has access to green space so the, the other thing I wanted to mention as well is that I've you know talking about the planting and there's been a lot of conversations recently about things like um, botanical sexism and and how uh, local authorities or governments are looking to only introduce trees that are of the male variety because they don't drop fruit and therefore um, you don't have to pay people lots of money to clean up the fruit underneath the trees and because of that the the, the air pollution goes up because of all the pollen in the air so you know I think that being very committed to looking at the ecosystem as a whole rather than sort of what's more convenient is a, is a, a direction I'd like to see it go down as well. I was talking to someone earlier on about the sort of development at King's Cross, you know, and how 30 years ago you would approach that. You, you, what, the way they approached the King's Cross development 30 years ago was relevant to how the world was 30 years ago. Yes. Now, if you were starting again, you'd do it differently. <laughs> we're going to we're going to make mistakes on the high line just as you know new if new york was starting from scratch they do it differently now because of the things that you learn and i think it's quite important that we allow ourselves to learn and you know be mindful to as many things as we can but accept the fact that we're not going to get all of this right and in 10 20 years time we'll think god why didn't we do that um and that's just part of progress and evolution and i think rather than kind of wring our hands and get too anxious about that the important thing is to kind of move forwards be as mindful as we can, but, but, but don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good either. I think that's a beautiful note on which to draw our conversation towards a close. We're out of time, but we've learned a lot and we've covered a lot in this session. And I, it's really encouraging, really positive to hear that a key approach of the Camden Highline is to, uh, to be kind of self-reflective, uh, to be open to maybe making mistakes along the way. But most of all, it sounds like the vision is one that is really, really seriously committed to making a positive, meaningful impact in the community, for the community, with the community. And I'm really grateful to everybody who joined us, to our live audience here in the Bloomsbury Theatre studio and to our online audience, hundreds of people joining us, hopefully from many parts of the world. But I'm especially grateful to our two guests, Simon Pitkeithley, thank you for joining us, and Jody Eastwood, thank you so much for joining us. You have been listening to Future Cities, brought to you by UCL, 
London's leading multidisciplinary university. To hear more podcasts from UCL, search for UCL Minds wherever you listen to your podcasts. A special thank you to our speakers, Simon and Jody, for sharing their expertise. This podcast is an Ant Nell production. The producer and editor of this episode was Shivani Dabeng.